0: Imagine being raised in one of the most isolated societies on Earth, where it's illegal to travel abroad, there is only one political party, and you have strained political relations with not only the world's great powers, but all of your neighbours too. Now, imagine you're that same person a few decades later, but you live in the 21st century, London in fact, enjoying all the benefits of modern capitalism and globalisation while being a successful author and professor at the London School of Economics. It's reasonable to say that having experienced such widely contrasting ways of running society, you'd have powerful insights into the meaning of freedom. Leah Erp doesn't need to imagine because that is the story of her life, written in her best-selling memoir, Free. It covers her childhood during the downfall of communism in Albania and the painful years of transition that followed. Leah, welcome to Downstream.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You grew up in Albania at the end of the Cold War. This was one of the most isolated countries on the face of the earth. What was that experience like?
1: So um, it was, at the time, felt very normal, actually. So it's only strange and isolated if you think about it from the point of view of non-strangeness and non-isolation. To me, there were things about growing up in Albania which we were all aware of. The fact, for example, that you couldn't travel outside the country that there were very few people who came into the country and that stood out when they came, that there was scarcity materially. There are lots of queues for everything, and food was rationed and um, things like that. There were no cars whatsoever. It was really hard to see. Like, I mean, there were no private cars. They didn't exist. But also, there was no traffic on the roads. The only thing you'd see were bikes and maybe a motorbike every now and then, and then buses, for example, to go to the beach. But it was very quiet. and. Um, Politically, I was in nursery and then school and both were heavily politicized. So you were told that you lived in a country that was the, as the slogan went, the lighthouse of anti-imperialist struggles in the world. And that Albania was one of the very few countries who had managed to preserve this uh, pure ideal of communism without making the kinds of compromises that other Soviet satellite states had made. So Albania was very isolated when I was growing up. It, was, it had fallen out with, of course, with every other capitalist country that there was. So there were no diplomatic relations with either the United States or the United Kingdom. But at the point in which I was growing up, it had also fallen out with the Soviet Union, with China, and with most other communist states out there progressively throughout its communist history, which was not the case for my parents. So my parents' generation, for example, had grown up with heavy influence from the Soviet Union.
0: Were well, you happy as a kid?
1: Yeah, I think so. I was, I was happy. I was loved. I felt loved. Um, I felt secure. The only thing I was afraid of were dogs barking and drunken people. And mm. my mum was very brave. So whenever I saw either a dog barking or a drunken person, she was like, oh, it's nothing to worry
0: about. You, you've got three kids now, right? And obviously you, you, you grew up and you had friends in Albania growing up then. And you you see your children and their friendship circles. So I think you, you've got quite a good ability to sort of compare. What, what what do you think was a better set of circumstances to raise children in, I wonder, um, in the abstract?
1: It's really hard to compare because I feel like as a child I was very happy, but in the innocence of childhood. Mm. But I feel like my parents, for example, who were a particular category of people anyway in Albania because they came from a dissident family and they had always been dissidents, and they had this secret that they carried with them about how they really felt about the society in which they lived. And so now I wonder about this divorce between the point of view of a child that is obviously happy in the circumstances that they are, and but the child who lives in a family in which the parents have a lot of things that they can't talk about in front of the children. Mm-hmm. And that's strange. I mean, m- maybe that is the case here as well. I don't know. It's m- but- maybe a lot of families in which people don't talk about stuff, about yeah. difficulties or... In front of their
0: children. I'm just thinking about the environment you were raised within, which is all of these abstract ideals, which is obviously completely different to how we we teach children today, whether that's in the school or just in in society more broadly. And, And I wonder that sense of mission for young people and solidarity and egalitarianism, which is, I think, broadly absent. What kind of a difference that makes?
1: I feel like the only, so when I talk to people who are children in the West, the only comparable set of circumstances is people who grow up in heavily religious environments, where they get this sense of purpose from this kind of religious community. And I think there was a sense in which the state was like an ethical community in a way that was trying to inculcate citizens with values and with ideas of justice and solidarity. And yeah, at least in the abstract, they were all, I think, good ideals, which in some ways I've carried forward
0: so why did albania end up in this situation where it was um anti-revisionist communist it was um not only at odds with the major powers but also all of its neighbors can you sort of offer a a a potted history of the 20th century from an albanian perspective
1: yeah so i think the reason in part for it ending up like this has to do with the fact that the communist project was combined with a state-building nationalist project And that Albania became an independent state in 1912, when more or less a few years before the Ottoman Empire collapsed for good. Before that, it had been part of the Ottoman Empire. And up to the point in which the Ottoman Empire really was completely destroyed as a project, there wasn't really a sense that Albania would be an independent state because most minorities within the empire were integrated. And in particular, Albanians were integrated in the Ottoman Empire. They were part of the Ottoman Empire elite and administration and many promising young people were actually sent to study in Istanbul or, and so became completely integrated. So It was only when the empire collapsed uh, that this sense of now we need a new political entity with a new project that became central to the minds of these intellectuals elites in the country. And from that point onwards, the country was more or less at the mercy of great power politics, as is the case with a number of small states in Europe where, you know, something fundamental happens, there is an imperial shift and the country, or this unit needs to decide what it is. And in some ways, the kind of the state, the project of state building needs to create a nation rather than the other way around. We tend to think that it's a nation that creates a state, but often it's because you have this need to be independent and to defend yourself often against rival powers, against territorial entities that are sharing a border with you that want access to the water or particular resources. So as a result of this need to protect the territory and the resources, the country was, as I say, in the 20th century, the first part of the 20th century, always at the mercy of these shifts and these great power politics. You know, you first Austro-Hungarians and the Austro-Hungarians weren't there anymore. France, Britain, Germany, Russia, and eventually also there were these smaller competitive nations, you know, Serbia and Greece and which were always contending territory that was in Albania that used to be part of the territory of the Ottoman Empire. So, and it was very, um, a country that was not industrialized, was not particularly developed. It was mostly rural with a not particularly high degree of uh, literacy or with a very small intellectual elite, but had which had been working mostly outside Albania throughout the Ottoman Empire. So, uh, and, and so the period in which the Albanian people were part of an independent state, which was not a communist state, was basically between 1912 and 1946, of which a part was either being a colony of Italy, which was uh, eventually had many material interests in Albania, but occupied formally in 1939. And so there was this fascist occupation, and then Nazi the Germany, where again, 1942, the uh, Italians, the fascist Italians, were replaced by the Nazis. And at that point, there was a resistance effort in Albania where the Communist Party, which was founded in 1941 with the help of Yugoslav communists, played a really important role. And this is where this party that then would basically control the fortune of the country for the second half of the 20th century really emerges as a political force and plays a really a key role in this effort to liberate the country from the Nazis.
0: So when people look at Albania in 1990, which is broadly when you're uh, situating the book, they would say, well, this is the failure of communism. Um, You've got much higher levels of literacy, but you've still got low GDP per head, not integrated in the global economy. And what you're saying is this can be traced back all the way to 1912 or even 1919 and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the historical processes that preceded the arrival of communists. This was not a modernized society. It was not a society that had a liberal public sphere, you might call it, didn't really have consolidated parliamentary institutions. It had been, as I say before that, in the hands of either fascists or Nazis or an authoritarian king who was also very... Um, arbitrary in the way in which he was exercising power. So there wasn't really a time in which the country had a flourishing liberal democracy that was then killed by the communists and that, you know. So I think the failures of communism in Albania are simply traceable in part, of course, to the unique nature of this project of communism that was also a nation-building project and Mm. that took these extreme nationalist features because it had to both, in some ways, develop these socialist institutions, but also just to defend the integrity, the territorial integrity of the state, but also to do with things in society that preceded communism.
0: How, How big a tragedy was the collapse of the Ottoman Empire? This is something I've been thinking about more and more... I think in the last sort of several years, looking at Iraq, looking at Kurdistan, looking at Syria, and we're still living in its shadow and its after effects. And I suppose for somebody in the Balkans, very similar story, but differently told. So, not, not that you want it back or anything, but I mean, how do you feel about its sort of demise?
1: Yeah, so it's, recently I've started to, to work and study more the Ottoman Empire because of a sort of new book project, but I've I'm now starting to think that, of course, if you think about the Ottoman Empire with the standards of democracy and justice that we have now, you wouldn't say that it was a kind of free society. But if you compare the Ottoman Empire with other empires that were around at the time, there were a number of things on which seemed to me that it was perfectly competitive or indeed fared better on a number of issues. For one, it was very, very tolerant of minorities. Um, I was reading recently something about gay rights in the Ottoman Empire, and it turned out that uh, if you were gay in the Ottoman Empire, one in Britain, you would have been killed, In the Ottoman Empire would have been fined. So there were a number of issues in which it was Mm. actually a much more tolerant society than you think uh, Mm. or than we think with the stereotypical image that we have now. and, and other issues as well to do with the coexistence of religious minorities, with the fact that uh, with how the Ottoman Empire made space for these religious minorities to control and to have their localized forms of power. And so it was a very odd, chaotic, but in some ways also very tolerant units. And so when it collapsed and their need was for these states that emerged in the shadow of the Ottoman Empire to become modern states, it was a very traumatic process, I think, for all of them one mm-hmm. way or another.
0: I mean, another one is Palestine, right? When people say, oh, Israel, Palestine, it goes back thousands of years. Well, actually, no, we can kind of situate the problems right at the start of the 20th century. And uh, it it does make you think, you know, you look at the occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan in the early 21st century, you think, Christ, I I wonder if the ramifications of that will go on another century, a century and a half. What were you taught in school? So this is a very different political environment to our own.
1: So um, we were taught to love our country and to appreciate the fact that it was, a, and to be very proud of it and of the fact that it was a very small country, but which had throughout its history resisted these empires, big and small. By the way, the relationship with the Ottoman Empire at the point in which I was growing up was a very antagonistic one. So it was not what I said, just said about the Ottoman mm. Empire is the result of my studies now, rather than what I was told in school. Because in school, the empire was just the enemy, the invader. Once you have this rhetoric of the nation state in which you belong and you, need to, you are taught to love the the state, then every entity that has threatened the territorial existence of that state uh, is becomes an en- en- enemy. So we were told that you know Albania was surrounded by these very powerful enemies, which wanted pieces of land and wanted to conquer us and invade us, and that the people had made this kind of brave effort to resist, and the. A war effort, the struggle against the fascists and the Nazis, was cited as one example because this was the only other country in Europe, in addition to Yugoslavia, that had liberated itself without the intervention of mm. uh, other powers. So it was either it was in Eastern Europe, it was either the Soviets or it was the Allied forces, and so Albania was the un, only country, in addition to Yugoslavia, where the Partisans themselves, with help from people on the ground, with peasants and so on, so had uh, liberated themselves. And This played a really important part also in the imagination of the children who grew up there, this story of kind of bravery, of being small but powerful, of a kind of heroic nation. But we were also told that we were a communist country and that uh, we had to fight capitalism and that capitalism was this unjust system that survived and existed in other parts of the world that created a lot of wealth and that wealth was a source of attraction for many of us because a lot of people in Albania grew up craving these goods from the West, but created also a lot of inequalities and social injustices. And so we were taught in school about apartheid in South Africa or about you know black people being oppressed in the United States. And we were shown often films from various points of the history of these countries that were more progressive films that one could find. Mm. So we grew up with this sense of the outside world as, as I say, a world that's shaped by this rivalry between the Soviet Union and uh, the capitalist world in a way.
0: You mentioned in the book being um, taught Darwin and Marx.
1: Yeah. As I a mean, small so, child, I mean, yeah. I find
0: this quite remarkable. It yeah. sounds like they're very high academic standards. It's
1: so, I mean, you wouldn't have been told them in any complex way, but you obviously mm. you were taught the basics. So you were taught that Marx was the founding father of communism. And that, you know, he wrote the Communist Manifesto and he wrote Capital. And then eventually, when uh, children grew up and became pioneers and were more integrated in communist structures, then the knowledge of Marx would became a little bit more com- complex and sophisticated than how it was for us. In elementary school, uh, it was mixed, Marx mixed with Lenin, mixed with Enver Hoxha, who was in some ways for children, the dominant character, was Albanian. Enver Hoxha was the main figure around which all these other founding figures of world socialism were connected to whom were connected. But for children, he was a main, in some ways, reference point. And Darwin, again, because we had no religion, Albania was um, an atheist country. It was, I think, maybe the only state in the world that had atheism in its constitution. And again, when I was growing up in the 80s was the most extreme phase of Albanian communism because there had been a point before where religious were, religion was not really accepted, but kind of tolerated. But in the late uh, 60s, early sentence, se- 70s, there had been a massive campaign of eradication of religion. And so mosques and churches were completely destroyed. And who drove that?
0: Was that, um, the, was that the party? Was
1: It was an internal party shift, but also with initiative from youth in the party, uh, inside it actually started in my hometown in Durres long before I was born. But so there were initiatives from the ground that were then supported by the party. But it's hard to say what was the, what, what, what was cause, what was effect. In a way, it was a kind of combined of effort. Um, so yeah. So when I was growing up, there was no no religion. No um, reminds me of the Jan song. You know, imagine mm. no uh, nothing basically only faith in the system and kind of secular values, but that were transmitted to us like religious values as if they were religious values. So, yeah, so Darwin in school was just the scientific point of view, basically. There was no other way of thinking about the creation of the world.
0: Um, That makes total sense now. So kids here are taught scripture.
1: Yeah. You just don't have that. Like it was completely outside of our horizon. I remember when I was um, in the early 80s I once saw the Pope on Italian television and I'd never seen the Pope I didn't even know what the Pope was who he was and what he looked like and my dad said this is the Pope and if you've never seen the Pope the Pope is quite striking just makes mm. kind of stands out and then there's this crowd of people who are following him and so on so it was only this kind of 30 seconds glimpse and then the signal was cut but i have this my first memory of actually seeing the pope and being told like there is something called religion is for me associated to a very specific very distinctive moment of standing in front of the television and seeing this man that was representative of god on earth
0: And what did you think at that
1: moment? And that it made no sense because it was like, you know, myths. And so we were taught again in school, we read classics of Greek literature uh, for children, so adaptation. And so we knew about like Homer and the Greek gods and so on. And so for us, the gods were the Greek gods in a way. And to be told that there was something else like a god to whom people still believed now in the 20th century was just very weird. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, I remember being told about this and thinking, this makes no sense. Like, How, why would anyone believe this?
0: Has that stayed with you? Because your family's Muslim.
1: Um, yeah, so in the 90s, then things changed radically and people opened up to religion and religion was kind of reinstated. And then it really was like the kind of free market of religions in a way, so I experimented because I had this atheism imbued in me when I was growing up. But then in the 90s, it became possible to believe again, and you start having these kind of metaphysical questions about, you know, what is the source of everything and so on and then i was going from one religion to the other so i remember i had a few years in which i was like a practicing catholic and was checking out the church and then a couple of other years where i discovered my family was actually muslim so i was going to mosque and learning the surahs and doing fasting for ramadan and so on oh wow and uh and then i kind of abandoned that as well and then at some point i discovered buddhism by reading an encyclopedia and so i was reading more about buddhism so throughout my you know teenage years i remember i was just checking out different kinds of religion and then in the end i went to study philosophy because i couldn't decide on any one of them and i guess i've ended up as an agnostic slash atheist now but yeah i don't so you sympathize feel...
0: with that little girl looking at the tv you think actually she she had the right idea
1: i mean i think she was maybe militant against religion more than i would be so mm. she really kind of thought that this is like regressive and horrible and that Mm -hmm. it needs to be fought and i don't think i have that stance now but uh, so it's probably a bit more tolerant now but in terms of yeah believing in a religion set of norms and so on positively i think it's probably quite similar the position
0: you have this beautiful description in the book of many of what a successful collapse of a political culture looks like and this really struck me we strove to grasp the power of our enemies to reverse their rhetoric resist their efforts to corrupt us And match their weapons. But when the enemy eventually materialised, it looked too much like ourselves. We had no categories to describe what occurred, no definitions to capture what we had lost and what we had gained in its place. What was that like to to live in a moment where all the certainties just completely collapse around you? I know your story is obviously from the vantage point of a, a child, but I'm sure you can remember the reactions of your parents and community.
1: Um, so, at the time, it felt like a completely open horizon of possibilities. And what's incredible when I think about it back now is how quickly all those possibilities were narrowed and how quickly it became this one particular path that everybody had to follow who was emerging from this history, regardless of what the specificities of each of these histories were. So, in 1990, December 1990, I remember as this moment of kind of great hope in the future, but coupled with complete ignorance about what the future would bring, mm. actually. So it was a moment that was against something, and that defined itself against what you had. And so the fact that this was a censored society, and I eventually discovered that it was a society that was marked by severe political oppression of dissidents, and it would knew, that you knew that it would not be that anymore, that it was mm. open, that you could have lots of different parties contending for power, or that it was a country from which you could never travel. Out to leave the country, and then suddenly in 1991, there are all these boats that were just leaving from Italy, one after the other. People just went to the port, and again, I remember this. It's really striking. When I tried to, when I was writing the book and I tried to reconstruct those moments, I found it really hard to think about how could you explain to a Western audience that people are just going to the port, jumping on a boat, and going to Italy. And, you know, it's not because there were smugglers. At that point, this was not Mm -hmm. developed. It had not become a trade yet. It was just spontaneous. You just go to the port, jump on a boat and tell the captain, you need to go to Italy now. And this was just the power of the crowds telling the captain to sail to Italy. And then they would go to Italy and they would ask for um, asylum there.
0: What was driving that?
1: I think it was this desire to be in the West, basically, to be in this world that had been prohibited to Albanians. people couldn't travel and so they were told they couldn't leave the country and now suddenly they could leave the country and so they were all drow- uh, driving going by the thousands but then eventually so so initially there was this urge to just leave and be where you had been told you can't be in yeah. a way so it was just but then eventually it was—it became a much more complex process of people leaving for all kinds of reasons, because there was unemployment, because of the kind of um, difficulties of the transition that very quickly arrived.
0: So initially it seems like it's born of a, just a desire to transgress, I guess, is that what you're saying? Rather than- Yeah,
1: to do something that you hadn't done before right. and to find the world that you had only seen in films and Italian yeah. television. And the image, and the, this is the other interesting thing. So the image of the West that you got in Albania was on the one hand, the image and and both of these images were kind of right. So on the one hand, you had the image of the West that was given in communist propaganda, which was this is a capitalist society that is very unjust, very exploitative, uh, oppressive in its way. And on the other hand, you had you know Italian television. So people had access to this Berlusconi. This was the initial those first years of late late eighties, early nineties. Initial years of kind of Berlusconi on television. It really coincided with. Particular way of understanding what television was doing for people mm. in terms of driving marketing values and uh, and presenting an image of a wealthy capitalist society where there is kind of this dream to mm. become rich and uh, and famous and and so on. So there was really and and that's also part of what was driving people. This idea that in the West you could just go there and find opportunities and become very rich and be a kind of self-made person who would realize a dream of um, freedom that you had been kind of. You'd grown up in some ways, cultivating in censorship with yourself, and so yeah, I think it was both of these things. The on the one hand, the idea that you were told this stuff about the injustice of capitalism in communist propaganda, but because communist propaganda was no longer there, because mm. you didn't have nobody was saying these things anymore, people assumed that was also a set of falsities that were just kind of irrelevant now, and that were just a bunch of lies that we'd been told. And so what was left was then just this idea of the Western societies as wealthy, affluent and realising promises and so on.
0: Nonstop ideology. And there was no counter power.
1: No, it was not. It was gone, basically. And that's what I mean when I say that the possibilities were narrowed very quickly, because that's exactly the, the critical point of view that was completely absent. In the 90s, and where it's not that it's not that there was no losses, it's not that there were no failures, because obviously clearly people went in the West and didn't make it, or clearly people tried to cross the border and didn't make it. But all the losses were individualized, and there was yeah. no sense of taking social responsibility for these individual losses.
0: Mm. We'll talk about that more because there's some incredible personal stories you've got, which I think really um, illustrate that. But as, as a general point, how quickly? And again, you're a small child, but. I mean, your mother and father were both prominent political actors later on, so I'm sure you've discussed this with them. How quickly was that sense of possibility foreclosed, where you go from anything is possible to actually actually, market reforms and transition mean not anything's possible, actually, a very limited set of Politics as possible.
1: Um, so the, the the trouble with that is it became very. It happened very quickly. So within two three years, there was a sense that these were the kinds of structural reforms that you had to enact to be successful, and uh, you needed market freedom, and you needed to privatize the state sector, and mm-hmm. uh, to make to take a number of measures, but. Because there was no dissent around it, what we now see as a failure was not clear that it was a failure then, because nobody was contesting this story. It's not that there was an alternative point of view that was articulated in the public sphere mm. and someone could say, oh, well, you know, you could have done that instead. That was just absent. And so that story was the only rational story. It really was like the end of history in a way. There's, you know, there's this is one script and that's it, and it's only now when you reflect back on these moments and you think, actually, you know, you could have done something different with the state Mm -hmm. sector, you could have followed a different path and you didn't have to do all the structural reforms and the neoliberalism and so on. But this is only, I think, accessible to us with the insight and with the knowledge of now. I don't think it was accessible at the time. At the time, there was universal consent around, like, this is the only path forward. Communism has lost, capitalism has won, and now we just need to do whatever it takes to to create a liberal society. Mm.
0: And this is really captured nicely by something your mother says, who, who features really prominently. I mean, she seems like such a big character. I mean, everybody in the book does. But she's kind of like this mini mini Margaret Thatcher. That's not to cast dispersions about what kind of person she is, but she's got a real, it seems to me, a big personality which she takes into politics. And, and she says about how, quite rightly, um, there's the need for privacy in, in Albania after the collapse of actually existing socialism or communism. And how... Privacy is impossible without privatisation. How, how literate were people in these concepts in 1990? I mean, it seems to me the, the, the stupidest thing you could do as a sort of a policy person, if you were to sort of say, we want people to have an informed democratic debate about what kind of society they would like to have, to go from what you had in the late 80s to this. So two questions. How literate were people and and how were the ideas transmitted? Because there's no internet, there's a limited set of newspapers. So I'm I'm interested in how the words of transition and privatisation became common parlance.
1: Yeah. So maybe the second question is easier to answer. A lot of it was done through radio and television. And as I say, people already had some access to Western radio and Western television also during communist Albania. So, this is one or another thing that I find here people struggle to understand. You think of this completely isolated, heavily censored society, and you think, well, it must just be closed. You know, people don't know what's going on there. But actually, What's, I think, remarkable about exactly those kinds of societies is the degree to which people go to great lengths to find access to alternative information, precisely because they know Mm. that they won't get the standard story from Albanian state television. They go and, I mean, so we had Yugoslav television as well with Macedonia. So that gave us another take on socialism, for example. Mm. And then you had Italian television, which gave you a take on on capitalism. So ideas were alternative ideas. A lot of them were circulated through media like that and through films or talk shows or tv programs political programs weren't really allowed so this is another thing access to foreign television was to some extent tolerated because when the news started the signal was just completely cut so it was clear that there was an intervention from the government that didn't want you to have access to political information but if you just wanted to watch sanremo which was the kind of italian pop festival like the kind of national version of eurovision then that was okay that was tolerated you wouldn't really go to prison for for you know, saying, I watched Sanremo, everybody talked about this, everybody talked about the singers, and I was in a coastal town in Adriatic. So uh, it was very close to Italy and the signal was very good. So it was very close to Italian culture in terms of pop culture, but of course, a lot of political ideas are filtered through pop culture. Mm. And so and so, And also a lot of images and alternative visions of society come through that. Another source was obviously people who traveled and so even though not everybody could travel, often people would travel for work or, you know, if you were part of the national sports team, you would go to, for a competition in the West and the people came with these stories, which then became mythical because there was only a very limited amount of people who came from the West and returned to Albania with all the stories of, you know, the kinds of shops that you would find and how people could buy goods very easily. And all of that, I think, contributed to this mythical understanding of the capitalist world outside Albania but also, as I say, contributed to just getting one story about the West. And so the alternative story you got was from communist propaganda. And once that was gone, then just alternatives were gone. And so maybe that answers your other question, which is, you know, why did people go for this very simplistic version of, you know, this transition and so on? Because literally there was nothing in between. It was either what people had been idealizing and not really reflecting on, but just getting access to from Western media or it was what you were given by the state in Albania, in which in the 90s, everybody at that point had rejected and was mm. was doubting. So,
0: On the one hand, I can understand the overcompensation. You've lived in this very unique society for decades and, and you go completely the other way and you sort of dismiss quite reasonable counter I get that. But I think, again, your mum is a really powerful microcosm of, of obviously what was happening more broadly. I don't know what her her job was. Was she...
1: Well, she was a teacher during communism, and then she took early retirement in ninety two and became entered politics. Basically, so she was the head of this kind of women's organization, which was a very weird thing for her to be because she actually didn't really believe in women's causes. We'll get to this, um, yeah, as something that you could mobilize around.
0: We'll get to that because I I found that really funny that your your mum had a kind of a a critique of of liberal feminism. We'll we'll get to that. I I find that really interesting. But sticking to the, the terms that were sort, sort of in circulation and how they became hegemonic so quickly. So, transition, sacrifice, you know, debt consolidation, initiative, you know, the, the words that we still kind of live under. I think actually, in a, in a weird way, they're taken less seriously now than they were, say, five years ago. But for a good 25, 30 years, that was political reality. And I wonder how a woman who's a teacher in Albania internalizes them and then reproduces them on the political stage i mean this is before twitter i know you're saying it's tv but there's no twitter there's no internet i mean I, I wonder about the role of ngos and sort of um us media
1: yeah
0: you know inside the country
1: yeah so i think um what was called civil society which was also a new category that didn't really exist before also entered very quickly Albania in the 1990s and these were a number of foreign NGOs that came to promote various civil society causes because the idea was that this is a society that had been failed by its own state but that somehow needed some kind of structure of cooperation uh, that went beyond the individual and so civil society became the buzzword for that and nobody really knew what it meant but it was like civil society and it was being reproduced and replicated and repeated as though it meant something. And I think it's the same thing with corruption, actually. And that's still going, I feel, in, certainly in Albania, but also in Eastern Europe more general. There's this kind of general discourse around corruption. Like, these are corrupt societies. Their root problem is that they need to find corruption. They need to fight corruption. And that is the source of all evils. I
0: mean, maybe here too as well, right? right. With Boris or the Boris Johnson stuff, that's the primary frame it's looked at. Through. Yeah,
1: maybe, and that is again a kind of individualization of responsibility without thinking about the general failures of the system in which you live and where you don't think that there is a kind of problem at a collective level but it's only something that comes out of the behavior of single individuals that just could be different, but decide not to. Where, without thinking about how the actual society and the system in which you live incentivizes that. You know, If you live in a system that has this for a value, making profit and kind of overcoming competition, there is a set of psychological attitudes that go with that, mm. which I feel are intrinsic to the system, even though they get vilified in and moralized in public discourse. And I feel society, and corruption is a very good term for that because it's exactly the individualization of a social evil.
0: Mm. And the way you talk about civil society, um, looking back, as you say, actually, we didn't really understand the events which unfolded with the collapse of communism, so we kind of just called it civil society, and how it substitutes for the the party. Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to make sense of something, you would have said once the party, now you're saying civil society. Yeah,
1: and also how it substitutes for the party in this very instrumental way in a way in which people don't quite believe in the party either. In the late 80s, you know, the party was, in the minds of people, already failed in a way. And civil society was never really successful either. And this is another thing that I feel Westerners didn't really understand, getting to this context. Or at least this was my experience. I used to work for the Red Cross for a bit and uh, for open societies. Was various NGOs mm. that were foreign. and. There is a sense in which if you're in a society that has a lot of unemployment where there's not that many resources, not many social opportunities, also actually not even opportunities for hanging out and having free time and Mm. and so on, then these become just opportunities for doing things. And so I remember people would say, oh, let's just go. There is a kind of a meeting to promote gay rights and there'll be like free drinks and free peanuts and everybody would just turn up to get free peanuts and and. And this was very widespread, this kind of cynical approach. And and the same thing with, you know, we just need to get some money and we'll have to write a project for this. And it will we'll have to write the project in a certain way because this is how it will be accepted by the donors and the funders. And so we'll have to write these things about Western values. But it wasn't clear that a lot of these things were sincerely upheld or people weren't particularly informed about them when mm. they were making these decisions. Um, So it was very easy to just pay lip service to all of these structures for instrumental reasons that had nothing to do with the kinds of values that they were promoting. Mm. Yeah, and I think this also contributes to a general cynicism about all of these things actually in these outside core Western contexts that sometimes you felt the people who came didn't quite understand this or didn't quite understand the large extent of this. So my father, for example, at one point was in the uh, in the port of Duros, and he was in charge of enacting these structural reforms for the World Bank. And his colleagues would say things like, oh, you know, we've survived the Ottoman Empire, we've survived the fascists, we've survived the Nazis, we've survived the communists, we'll survive the World Bank. And there wasn't a sense that people were really embracing these values or that they were doing things mm-hmm. because they were committed to them. But it was just, this is what you do to survive and to get on and... Um, so there was a fundamental cynicism and disbelief, which I think also came quickly after this phase of great faith in the 90s, when people began to realise that it wasn't going to be as quick and it wasn't going to happen in the way in which it had been promised and that the path to transition to something was going to be a lot ar- a lot more arduous than uh, we initially thought.
0: I mean, a more recent example for me is Ukraine, which is um is really interesting. You, you've basically got life expectancy today where it was in the 70s. You've had massive depopulation, people leaving the country to go elsewhere. You know, GDP per head is not moved for decades, you know, 30 years. And this is World Bank data, you know, I'm not just sort of cherry-picking here. This this seems to me like a complete failure of, of quote unquote transition. Before Russia invaded, and I'm not saying that in any way that obviously this d- deeply, deeply horrific thing, and it's going to cost the country trillions of dollars. I'm not suggesting that, but the ideological claim was in the West that it was going in the right direction because you could join an NGO. And I think, well, if life expectancy is what it was 40 years ago, and 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 it's depopulating, this to me is the the quintessence of a failing society. Do do you think that? Do you think that's right? Do you think that? we were calling these societies, societies making progress, societies in transition. But actually for a very long time, they were going backwards.
1: I think the problem is with what you think is transition in a way, and what they're transitioning to, where they're transitioning to. So you only stop seeing it as transition when you lose faith in the promise, when you lose faith in the alternative. And the problem, I think, with a number of these societies is that it's not that people have faith in the alternative. It's just that they have no faith in anything. So I think there is a general attitude. The widespread attitude is one of fundamental cynicism, and I would say nihilism, about the world in which one lives. So you can only begin to question this path, this developmental path, this idea that this is just a stage, and of course there are losses, of course there are sacrifices, of course there's individual tragedies, Mm. but they don't amount to a social catastrophe because the promise is still a promise, it's still a vision. And the vision is upheld only by those who promote the vision in a way. I don't think people on the ground really believe in the vision anymore, or I'm not really sure how committed they actually are, it's just, it becomes a very um, instrumental and Really, in some ways, disheartening approach to just one's life and one's society when you notice that what you're surrounded by is this general sense of cynicism and disbelief, and um, but about everything. And yeah. so, yeah, and I think the liberals don't have this, so that's kind of liberal societies in the West. There is still, I find. It's because you also don't have the the narrative of transition in a way. You're not transitioning to anything. You already are already in the best states possible, and what you do is you have elections and you have political decisions that will remedy things on the margins, but there isn't a sense in which you are going to enter a real world. And I think the, the narrative, the discourse of transition has something about you're moving from one state to another state, and all the difficulties are in some ways relativized because of the fact that you're in transition. You're not there yet. And um, and I think now people maybe have lost faith in the transition as well, but it's not clear that they have faith in anything else or that they think, okay, you could challenge this vision with another vision.
0: Your mother talks about Albania becoming a, a European country. We just want to be a normal country. And, and that's discourse you hear repeatedly, You know, but you also are in Italy. Why did Italy, when it was probably not in its national self-interest join the Eurozone, we wanted to be a, a, a normal European country. That basically means you want to be like, Germany or, or France. Yeah. Um So there's these mo- sort of multiple geometries of normality. Um, and, and today, you know, Albania has um, all the things that your mum wanted: respects private property. Uh, there's a respect for contract, a, a, a huge space for private enterprise. You know, its GDP per head is probably where Spain was in 1990, and people in in 1990 thought that Spain was a a developed, transitioned country. So what are the conditions even for the ideologues for Albania to have quote-unquote transitioned? I mean, I, I agree with you, it's a fiction and it's it's got little tangible meaning, but I, I wonder, I mean, there are some examples of it, right? They could say, well, Singapore or South Korea, they transitioned. So what, what's the kind of ideal type of the transitioned country for for places like Albania?
1: I suspect there will be a set of rules and norms that are the standards that are required to, for example, join the European Union. So, the European Union has a set of criteria which are part of its conditionality when it enters a process of negotiation with new members. And in the Balkans and around all these countries, for example, in Albania, the discourse around joining the EU is really, really strong. And the idea is have we done everything that we need to do in order to be part of the European Union? And I suspect. It will be officially have transitioned once it's part right. of the European Union. But then you understand that what they mean when they talk about Europe or European values, it's actually a very small sample of European states. Because if you look at Poland or Hungary, these are countries that in some ways have transitioned because they're already part of the EU. But in another way, you wouldn't say, well, they are the foremost representatives of European values. Mm. You don't have those in mind when you think about the EU. So our very interpretation of the EU is actually a very small sample. Of EU states that have developed under particular conditions, often against the background of an unjust past. and those the, clo- the colonial darker-
0: powers, basically. Exactly.
1: And ba- exactly the, the former great powers, which were always in charge of the fate of small states in the Balkans, but you also place like Ukraine and so on. Uh, so, all small nations throughout their history, I think, have been at the mercy of great power politics. It's just that now, because it's nationalistic and politically incorrect to call them great powers, you call them the European Union or you give them some other more. Ben- name and you don't talk about civilizational emancipation, but you talk about conditionality. But effectively, I think the dynamic of political relation is very similar.
0: Yeah. Would you call the European Union a superpower, a great power?
1: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I—I I mean, of course, I would go further. I would say it's a neo-colonial power, but uh, my, people wouldn't—that wouldn't, that wouldn't resi- necessarily resonate with a lot of people in Albania because that is the—you know—if you have this promise that you will be part of this club, then once you're in the club, you're effectively joining as an equal. Then you know, you, you—it's—it's it's a different dynamic.
0: Why, why do so many Albanians want to join the European Union when the last thirty years, from the perspective of economic growth and whatnot, has actually been? pretty good. I mean, I was looking at the, the Albania's GDP stats. I mean, of course, these don't tell the whole story. But I think in um, in 1990, Italian GDP per head was about nine times Albania. And today it's about three times Albania, which would suggest you're doing, you're doing just fine without the European Union. And, and when you see what it's done to countries like Greece and so on, I, I wonder, is there an argument inside Albania for different kind of developmental path? Or is that just, debate is over, join the European Union? There is
1: no discussion. In fact, that is what I think kills politics in the country, is that there is no discussion around that. Because then everything becomes part of a technocratic technocratic project of how you could join it, rather than is it right to join it or not? And what does the EU represent? Which I think also means that when you do join it, you join it as someone who has joined from the position of a dependent nation, rather Mm. than someone who joins as an equal. And that matters a lot for the dynamic of the European Union. Union, if you never question. So I'm not against joining Albania joining the EU, by the way. I think there is a set of opportunities, mobility, and also culturally, I believe in supranational units in a way. So there's something about the European project that appeals to me, regardless of the shortcomings of European Union institutions as such. But for me, it's just a site where you could expand a concern right. for social justice and, and a set of social struggles. So I'm not I'm not saying that you know all these countries should just entrench and kind of develop their own path. But I think when they do engage with this process, they should engage with it in a critical way that brings what their resources and their past and their history to the mm. table, and from which also European Union institutions could learn because they just get a different perspective from the one that keeps repeated in Brussels. And I think that is what is missing, and that's exactly not having a critique of the European Union does that. It deprives domestic politics of an essential debate that would be important to have, Mm. even if the ultimate goal is joining.
0: You're a Kantian. How could you be opposed to supranational uh, families of nations?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I mean, it's. I I mean, so I don't love the EU, but I think there is something about the European project that is important and, and worth thinking about.
0: This is a really interesting point you've made, though. So in 1990, there's structural adjustment, and there's the foreclosure of a vast range of political possibilities. And what you're saying is, and, and there's still that sense of necessity, and it's quite different, but in many ways it sounds like it's quite similar too, of we need to meet the conditions now of joining the EU, and then one day it'll be, we need to meet the conditions of joining the Eurozone. Yeah. And so actually this this politics of of national sovereignty and of independence and of democracy, it doesn't sound like all of the above.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the, I mean, I say this in the book, that's to me the mark of dogmatism in a way and kind of approaching these superstructures with this dogmatic attitude that doesn't enable criticism to flourish. And that's what was missing in the 90s and what's been missing. Now I think maybe there's something that kind of the roots of this go deeper. I, I think they go into a sort of, being, as I say, part of first an imperial structure, and then at the mercy of great power politics, and then having had the particular kind of communism that we had. So there's a sense in which throughout history, there is, on the one hand, a dogmatic attitude, and on the other hand, the sense of, you know, you're not worth it. It's I think it's part of the sort of imperial discourse that you convince dependent nations that they're not good enough by themselves, that mm. they always need someone bigger and larger and more important than them to to guarantee their their existence and their well being. And this makes it into people's minds in a way that is very deeply rooted and which then makes them lose fundamental faith in them, which then, you know, if you don't have faith in your own capacities, go back to Kant and to your own ability to generate criticism that is plausible, then you end up with this just paying lip service and having this kind of very dogmatic commitment to democracy, rule of law, anti-corruption, or in the case of communism, you know, anti-imperialism, mm. um, social justice, but not in a way in which people really believe in it and, and and then develop their own criticism, but in a way that is just ticking
0: boxes. How would you explain the fact that so many countries in, in Central and Eastern Europe was so quickly fixated on the idea of joining the European Union. Now, I'm, I'm not saying it wasn't a good idea, or it shouldn't have happened, or I'm not coming at this from a Eurosceptic point of view. But like you say, someone like Albania hasn't been a sovereign, independent country for, for a particularly long time. You go from 1912 to the 1940s, and then again since 1990. You look at the, the Baltic states, You know they were part of the Russian Empire, and then of course they were under you know Moscow's sphere of influence during the Cold War. You've striven for so long to be a sovereign self-governing nation state it strikes me as counterintuitive that you'd be looking to give away so many economic and political competences uh, particularly if you want to join the eurozone i mean you're giving away a significant amount of your sovereignty now people say well that's pooling sovereignty and actually it's in your rational self-interest M- maybe but that's not the point you know you've had this struggle for hundreds of years to have your own nation state and then immediately appalling the sovereignty, it it strikes me as strange. And I wonder where that ideological compulsion comes from and its relationship to the, the 20th century struggle between communism and capitalism.
1: Well, I mean, I think that has to do with the nature of the, the, first of all, the way in which the EU presents itself. So the EU presents itself as a very successful economic project, which also gives some degree of independence to political units within it. So it's treaty based rather than, you know, constitutionalized. It has, it doesn't kill sovereignty. It just enables this mechanism of efficient integration of markets. And I think the idea of having an alternative model only makes sense if you have an alternative economic project. But if you think that these nations who are now in an alliance in a kind of transnational alliance with each other are the ones that have emerged successfully from the cold war are the efficient model are you know the example of the symbol of successful economies then The way in which the project is presented is, well, you can just be part of the common market, of the European common market, and then you still have your political independence. Mm. So I think this notion that there is an alternative path only makes sense if there is also an alternative economic path. But once the alternative economic path has been killed, as it was with the Soviet Union collapse and with Mm. the end of the Cold War in Europe, there is no sense of vision of an alternative economy. And once that is not there, then why not join this block of states that are doing trade efficiently with each other and giving some opportunities and distributing a little bit of wealth here and there, and trying to help marginalised regions, and you get resources from this European mm. you know, agricultural policy or whatever. So it seems to me that as a kind of technocratic project, it makes perfect sense. It's only, it, it, as I said, it can only be challenged if you have an alternative developed view of what it would be like to have a different kind of market and a different set of inter- economic interactions.
0: So, going back to your mum uh, and this is a, again a really funny vignette, she is criticizing these sort of liberal feminists, and she says, "Oh, these Western women they can't work and look after the family or you know they, they they can't multitask like we can as Albanians." was that a common sort of a common thing amongst Albanian women of her age
1: uh yes, I think it was it was very much part of the I would say alternative feminism that you would find in Albania. So again, this was a very patriarchal society. It had been a Muslim society before communists came to power. And so the point at which women started integrating in society was from a social perspective, not really egalitarian. Women were doing everything inside the household and there wasn't really a sense of women being integrated in the labor market and so on. And then with communism, there was this massive push to actually do things differently and and it, was done. So women could work in mines, be bus drivers, train drivers, all the profession They were all in the workforce. There were no women that stayed at home. I don't remember a single mother. I'm not even sure it was possible to actually be at home. But as a child, I don't remember a single friend with a mother who was staying at home. They were all working. But at the level of social norms, of course, the dynamic was very paternalistic. And so the men were still feeling like, you know, it was always more desirable to have a male child than a female child. And there was, this, there was a lot of harassment, um, which sometimes was punished, sometimes not. But at the level of ground rules in society, regardless of this official state structure in which women were integrated, it was very paternalistic. So women, in other words, to, to, to make it into this environment, had to do everything. So they had to both work and work at home, do domestic labor, but also do, and they felt like superwomen because they were doing everything. And so this idea that in the West, women had to choose between looking after children and working was inconceivable in Albania. And it, it felt like a kind of failure of Western fem- Western feminist struggles that they were unable to conceive how you could just multitask rather than, you know, do quotas or do this
0: but i wonder what was the the childcare infrastructure like in albania for for women to have to have done that because obviously the east german republic had superb childcare yeah
1: we had free nursery and free school and free very young sort of free crèches as well and grandparents also did a lot so we had also a set of social, social solidarity instructions and also we relied on this is the other thing you didn't have obviously commodified babysitting, so it didn't exist the idea that you could pay a babysitter, but it was the structures of society were so solidaristic that you could just go and ask your neighbor, like, can I leave my daughter here for the day? And, or, you know, you get a grandparent involved and so So there was uh, paid state child care, but also in addition to that, there were very good support networks of people just relying on friends and family and neighbors for
0: everything. Because the the, the overcompensation point we were talking about earlier, you know, your mum's sort of default would be, this isn't the state's problem. Yeah, exactly. To be looking after a child. because
1: someone can always find some way in which they will uh, find a solution. And the more the state interferes, the more likely the state is to reach, to extend its reach on individuals' lives and endanger their freedom.
0: But did she ever grasp the reason why Albanian women could do what they did, working, raising children, etc., was because you had a, a distinctively different kind of society to what there was in the West?
1: Yeah, I think she understood that, but then she also felt that the cost of that was interference by the state right. in freedom. And so, because she was a radical libertarian, she felt that it was better to take the costs than to take the advantages that that offered.
0: I find that, and also just to say quickly, your dad sort of strikes me as kind of like an eco socialist, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah. He was much more kind of romantic socialist and very, very different in everything, the way he approached everything. They were like completely opposed in terms of values and social norms and so on. Uh, and they had, I, I mean, I think in the end, I always think this: that the, the difference between the radical left and the radical libertarians is always in how you think of human nature mm. and how you think of the capacities that people have towards each other. So my mother always thought, in, even in the best possible society, people will always be resentful and envious and hate each other and be, they will develop these instincts that they will then make them fight. And so if you try to resolve these fights in this way, then the state will always interfere and make more mess than it tries to resolve. Whereas my father had a much more benign view, which is also mine of human nature, which is it all down to education and to how society develops. And, you know, people don't have to be fundamentally evil. They can also be fundamentally good if they grow up in fundamentally humane societies. Mm-hmm. But it really comes down, because you never, you don't know what the answer to that question is, we don't know it because we've never seen a fundamentally good society. We only know what we have seen and you know we have this history of, of war and struggle and conflict and so we essentialize human nature in that way. So it's really hard to answer that question. It's, I think in the end, it's which way do you want to bet about humans? Mm-hmm. And so I find eventually understood my mother and I could see where she was coming from when it became clear to me that she will always doubt that however good a society is that people will actually do these things for each other.
0: The failures of transition are communicated really well in um, in the book. I mean, before we started recording, I said the sort of great strength of the book is also its, its weakness. I don't think it's a weakness. But for some readers, it might be in so much as the points you're making, because it's a narrative memoir, are very ambiguous. You're not saying this is right or this is wrong. Um, but where it struck me that that's most overt, the sort of the unethical nature of parts of the transition was when your father is... Uh, laying off or having to having to lay off uh, Roma workers at the docks but perhaps more powerfully was when your friend Ilona leaves with her boyfriend she's age 15 at the time um, she gets involved like you say in these people uh going over to Italy eventually he becomes involved in human trafficking her boyfriend she becomes a sex worker I mean how, how common was that for sort of younger Albanian women in the early mid 1990s
1: it was not uncommon it depended a lot on which background you came from what kind of opportunities uh, what kind of opportunities there were for you which family grew up in what so in her case it was a particular tragedy because she grew up without her mother and she mm. was an orphan and so she didn't have sort of guiding authorities but i'm glad you ask about her because in a way she is my alter ego in the mm-hmm. book mm-hmm. sometimes when i present the book uh, to various kinds of audiences, they say to me, but you know, you're an example. You made it. You are here to tell the story. You know, you started from nothing and you went to Italy and you were by yourself and you didn't have many resources, And but you succeeded. So you are kind of clearly a good example. And I often have to remind them that there's another character in the book whose life goes exact opposite from mine with the transition. And that these are both not uncommon stories. Of course, there's people like me who make it, but there's also people who lost their lives in the crossing. People who were trying to be smuggled to Italy and didn't make it or who went to italy and got lost or who got laid off or who had accidents on the work on the job there were so many tragedies of transition that if you only focus on the success stories you're missing but you only hear the success stories because those are the survivors that live to tell the story the others can't tell their stories because they're not there. Someone like Elona doesn't have a voice, and some she she's not able to tell you her story. And it's also very difficult because of social stigma and so on. Mm. People don't speak about these things. They don't speak about their failures and the loss, their lives as a loss. So, to me. It was very important to have her in the book because everybody in my hometown would recognize that story. They would know someone like that, or they would have heard of someone who had a similar tragedy or a, a, a similar set of circumstances of moving into the West and not making it. And as I say, so she's a kind of alter ego in the book. There's another character. There's another little girl. She's the same age, goes to the same school, goes through the same process of transition. There's nothing fundamentally different. But it's about which family you're growing up with, whether you have a mother or not, or whether what resources you have, and my family, even though it was a dissident family, was in some ways an elite family it was trying to, uh, and who had resources they had to navigate the transition and to find their way in the world. And often we underestimate how much we get from our family background mm. and our social background that enables us to then find our way.
0: I think this taps into something uh, more broadly, and you said in an interview with the Financial Times, they were saying, well, you know, clearly the transition's been a good thing, an unadulterated good, um, and the, the good stories vastly outweigh the bad stories. And your response is, well, the people with the bad stories just haven't had the time to tell theirs yet. But you think you think that will change? You think the further away we get from the 1990s, the more balance we'll see in, in, in the reality of this? Because for me, a, a good example of that is, the Berlin Wall. In the public psyche, you know, the Berlin Wall was this horrific division between people and people died. But actually, in terms of crossings, you know, you're know, you looking at hundreds of people, I think fewer than 200 officially. Um, and of course, if you look at people presently trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea, you're looking at the, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands, and that's just in the last decade. Why do you think that we view one as the result of an authoritarian, terrible ideology, and the other as just inevitable. That's life. There's nothing we can do about it.
1: I think because it's not about comparing numbers, but it's about the organizing framework through which you view these deaths and these losses. And so with the kind of the Berlin Wall deaths, we have an organizing framework. We have an ideology that enables us to criticize this other ideology, which is a dominant ideology as it happens, from which you say, you know, communism is really horrible. It's evil. It's done these things. It's killed people at the border and so on. And on the other hand, when you think about the current examples of losses of lives in border crossings and so on, it's all about the fact that there is no framework from which you can integrate these losses. Into a narrative, or I mean, there is one. Obviously, maybe for for listeners of Novara, they can see how these things come together. But I don't think in the name in 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 the minds of. Ordinary citizens, it occurs to them to see that migration is clearly connected to underdevelopment. It's cre- clearly connected to the failures of globalization. That there is a very direct relationship to the exploitation of labor and to the failures of capitalist system, and that migration is no isolated part, but it's part. And, and the losses that are caused by mig- migration are a part of that system. But of course, these are losses that, if we don't have this organizing framework, are all individual losses. It's like you know, you go out and you get killed by a car. And It's just a tragedy, but it's an isolated tragedy. There is nothing structural, nothing systemic about that loss. It only becomes systemic if you have an alternative framework and an alternative vision and an alternative point of view from which you can organise the stories that you then tell about these people.
0: Mm. I mean, it's not something I've I've researched particularly, but when I think about narratives of, for instance, when when people talk about mail order brides from the former Soviet bloc and things like this, and you think, these are human beings coming from a culture which gave us Tarkovsky, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and within a sort of period of like maybe 20, 20, 30 years, there's this incredible shift in the sexualization of women from a certain part of the world, and it it's something still today that we we barely talk about. Why did that happen, and where did it come from?
1: I think, uh, I mean, it really is about, as I say, ideology, and I, and also ideological hegemony in a way. It's. This, you brought this example, example in my mind is about how Albanians were viewed in 1990. So before 1990, if you had left Albania during communism and you ended up in Italy asking for political asylum, you would be a hero who was surviving to tell the story of the horrors of Albanian communism. And then within the space of very few months, Mm. the same immigrants who had been political dissidents heroes became the lazy Albanians who don't know how to work because they've always been in these societies where, you know, economic efficiency wasn't particularly rewarded. And so they went from being the victims of the system to being responsible for this alternative set of values that allegedly threatened the European values of productivity and hard work and who ended up being just criminals. I moved to Italy in 1997, and this was still, and it was really part of my, it was an important part of my political awakening in a way to be an Albanian in Italy in those years, because you were immediately categorized. People saw you and noticed that you were Albanian, and they noticed that you were speaking Albanian, you had an accent, and you became immediately, instantly a threat. And the Albanian was the criminal, was the drug dealer, was the thief. And it had gone very quickly, as I say, within a few months, it had gone from being the hero who had survived Albanian communism to being this lazy individual who didn't want to integrate and just couldn't see what European values really were about and couldn't endorse them, and therefore were a threat to the well-being of these societies where they were immigrating. When, if you look at it from the other perspective, the people were not only a threat to these societies, but they had actually grown up idealizing these societies. And so it was the the exact opposite. Not only did they not threaten these values, they had actually grown up revering these values and idealizing them. They were the most ardent supporters of the system that you could think of because they had no criticism of it. So it was the exact opposite. And yet the way this was... um, manipulated in public discourse was really interesting. And I think exactly an example of how it's all down to what job you want narratives to play in a kind of more general ideological framework.
0: There's a line from an interview with Prospect magazine, which goes as follows. She describes, she Ming Yu, um, the patent inequality she sees on a bus journey from luxurious Knightsbridge to run down Harlesden. Quote, it is not clear to me why this is the image of a free society. Do we live in a free society?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, because I think you don't lose your freedom just when people, and this is again one of the main messages of the book, is you don't lose your freedom only when a person or an agent or the party or a state tells you, you can't do this, you can't do that. You also lose your freedom when you have a set of anonymous structures through which everybody goes about doing what they're meant to do. They just play the social role that they're meant to play. But the overarching effects of that structure being in place as the structure that it is, namely a capitalist structure in the case of London, is that it generates unequal development, it generates poverty, it generates social exclusion, and also a sense of alienation and also this sense of radical division where you have a part of London that just doesn't care about the other part of London and for me that was one of the most striking things actually about coming to Britain because you often Britain is the capital of capitalism in some ways and you know London is the the heart of, of capitalism and the heart of development and if you come from Albania you come here hoping and thinking that there is this uh, massive wealth that somehow gets redistributed and for me it was shocking to go through some parts of London and see you know the down houses and the people who are clearly struggling and uh and a level of social anomie that would be revolutionary in any other context in which people were aware about the fact that this is a systemic problem rather than just an individual failure problem and that is why i say that it's we're not in, we don't live in free societies because a society in which we are not all free is a society in which none of us can really be free
0: the uppy thank you so much for joining us on downstream
1: thank you for having me
0: The mainstream media are fundamentally incapable of dealing with the most pressing issues facing our world. Billionaire owners and advertisers define what corporate media outlets do and don't cover. But thanks to our supporters, Navarro Media is free to tell the truth and hold the powerful to account. All of our articles, videos and podcasts are free to access, free from ad partnerships, free from paywalls and free from the influence of the super rich. Over 100,000 of you visited NavarraMedia.com in the past month and over 200,000 of you are subscribed to Navarra Media on YouTube. We're doing all of this with just 6,000 regular supporters. Imagine what we could do with 10,000 of you backing us. Join us at NavarraMedia.com forward slash support and donate anything you can from just £1 a month. We can't do this without you.